Hello, and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall podcast, episode 13, Picking Up the Pieces. You'll note we've been on something of an extended summer vacation recently. In honor of Tammany Hall, I hope you've all had a summer full of fun, sun, and political kickbacks. Well, I've got some good news for you. I'm uh, back, and I've got a few episodes ready to go in the hopper. We ought to be back on a more regular schedule moving forward. Turning to the business at hand, this episode marks an important turning point in our narrative. We've finally bid a fond farewell to our old pal Aaron Burr. So far, Burr has been the central figure in our story. More than anyone else, he was responsible for transforming Tammany from a nonpartisan social club into one of New York's most powerful political organizations. Following Burr's fall from grace, it was entirely possible that Tammany would fade into political oblivion. Yet, against all odds, Tammany survived. A combination of clever leadership and missteps by opponents allowed Tammany to regain its influence. This was really the first instance of a pattern we'll see repeated plenty of times over the next century and a half. Again and again, Tammany fell under the control of a single powerful leader who inevitably collapsed in scandal and disgrace. Despite frequent reports of the machine's imminent demise, Tammany had a knack for picking itself up off the ground and returning to power. Today, we'll take a look at how Tammany managed its very first feat of reinvention. 1805 did not have the makings of a banner year for the Tammany Society. Tammany's de facto leader, former Vice President Aaron Burr, was out of office and in disgrace following his duel with Hamilton. By now, Burr's attention had shifted to the western frontier and his days as a New York power player were well and truly over. To make matters worse, Tammany's opponents in New York's Democratic-Republican Party were in the ascendant. The Clinton and Livingston families dominated federal, state, and local government, and, for the time being, they remained implacable foes of the former Burrites who led the Tammany Society. Burr's successor as Jefferson's vice president was none other than George Clinton, the former longtime governor of New York. Replacing Clinton in the state house in Albany was the man who defeated Burr in 1804, Morgan Lewis. Lewis's primary political asset was being related to the Livingstons by marriage. He was generally expected to act as a loyal creature of his political patrons. Finally, DeWitt Clinton, George's nephew and the most ambitious member of his family, was still the mayor of New York City. Despite his rather aristocratic bearing, the younger Clinton was not above getting his hands dirty in political combat. As he once said, the meekness of Quakerism will do in religion, but not in politics. As mayor... DeWitt Clinton controlled a host of patronage jobs which he used to reward allies and punish enemies. As we've seen with his rough treatment of Burr during the 1804 governor's race, Clinton was a master at attacking rivals through the press. Clinton's ultimate goal was to ride his mastery of New York's Democratic-Republican Party to national power. 
So it's fair to say that things looked pretty gloomy as the members of the Tammany Society looked out from their meeting hall in Martling's Tavern on the corner of Nassau and Spruce Streets. Yet, the year 1805 saw Tammany start out on the long, difficult process of regaining its political footing. Much of the credit for this revival should go to Matthew L. Davis. We've uh, mentioned Davis a couple of times in the past. He was a former journalist and a key member of the Little Band, that loyal cohort of committed Burr acolytes. With Burr out of the picture, Davis was free to assert himself as Tammany's top dog. He employed some of his old mentor's techniques, solidifying the organization's top-down hierarchical structure and ensuring that key posts at every level would be filled by trusted followers. However, unlike in Burr's day, Tammany would no longer be subject to the whims and national ambitions of a single figure. Rather, Davis envisioned Tammany as a more focused and professional institution, with the single focus of gaining and retaining power in New York City. As Davis himself wrote, I think we've learned sufficiently to know the folly of connecting our political destiny with that of any individual, and more especially when the wishes and conduct of that individual is not in unison with the wishes and expectations of the party. Davis was not driven by idealism or ideology. He did not shy away from difficult compromises or awkward alliances if they helped advance Tammany's influence. For this reason, Davis, rather than Burr, is the real model for the hard-headed and calculating bosses of future Tammany generations. More than one historian has called him Tammany's true founder. Davis's efforts were aided by a major administrative change. Particularly eagle-eared listeners, sorry, I don't know if eagles actually have good hearing, uh, might have noticed that so far I have tried to avoid the phrase Tammany Hall. In these early days, the organization was simply the Tammany Society. As we've discussed, the Tammany Society was originally founded as a nonpartisan benevolent society. By 1805, however, there was evidently some internal apprehension with the society's turn towards overt political activity. And so, the organization applied to the state legislature for a charter recognizing the Tammany Society as a charitable body for the purpose of affording relief to the indigent and distressed members of said association, their widows and orphans, and others who may be proper objects of their charity. Of course, this did not mean that Tammany was leaving the political scene altogether. Instead, the, ta- the society's leaders spun off a new organization, the General Committee of Tammany Hall, under the control of Matthew Davis. This general committee, which I will now call Tammany Hall, was a reformed version of the Democratic-Republican General Committee established by Burr back in the election of 1800. It had the power to organize all official meetings of the New York City Democratic-Republican Party. Davis had a real skill, invaluable to any machine boss, for controlling these meetings by packing the hall with loyal followers and pushing through his agenda. Thus, Davis was able to quash any potential dissent within the official organ of the local party. 
In theory, Tammany Hall's leadership was elected by rank-and-file members of the Democratic-Republican Party in each ward across the city. In reality, however, these elections were highly choreographed events. In most cases, voters were presented with a choice, in air quotes, of a single candidate who had been pre-selected by the leaders or sachems of the Tammany Society. And so, the ostensibly charitable Tammany Society continued to exert its control over the overtly political Tammany Hall. This murky, often confounding relationship between these two organizations would persist for the next century and a half. These early years of the post-Burr era witnessed the emergency of a few other notable features that would characterize Tammany Hall for the rest of its history. First was a propensity for attention-grabbing publicity stunts. The treatment of American POWs during the Revolutionary War was a festering source of resentment amid the patriotic atmosphere of the early Republic. In New York, this resentment focused on Wallabout Bay, later the site of the Brooklyn Navy Yards. Here, some 11,500 Americans died aboard wartime British prison ships. The remains of these prisoners could still be found at the bottom of the bay and regularly washed up on the Brooklyn shore. Recognizing an opportunity to garner some positive press and reinforce Tammany's patriotic image, Davis launched a campaign to gather the remains of these prison ship martyrs and bury them in nearby land, which was coincidentally owned by a local Tammany bigwig. The campaign succeeded in raising the money necessary to inter the remains. On April 13, 1808, a solemn procession marched down to the lower Manhattan waterfront from Tammany's headquarters. From there, they proceeded across the East River to Brooklyn aboard 13 open boats, each of which carried a single symbolic coffin draped in black. Once at Wallabout Bay, the members of the Tammany Society led a formal ceremony honoring those who died aboard the prison ships. This was a massive public relations coup. The state legislature soon voted to grant Tammany an additional $1,000 for the construction of a grand memorial on the site. However, that was as far as things went. Evidently, Davis and his cronies pocketed the money. The Prison Ship Martyrs Monument, which you can now see in Fort Greene Park, was not completed until 1908. The conclusion of this story points to another lasting characteristic of Tammany Hall to emerge during these years. That is, a growing reputation for corruption. As a general note, the lines between public and private were fairly blurry in these early days. A certain degree of self-dealing was considered totally normal among public office holders. Still, even within this context, Tammany's corruption raised eyebrows. In 1806, one prominent Tammanyite named Benjamin Romaine was forced out of his post in the office of the city controller when news of shady property deals came out. He had somehow acquired a large tract of land in Manhattan for absolutely nothing. 
A host of other Tammany-affiliated local office holders, including the Superintendent of Public Repairs, the Collector of Assessments, and the wonderfully named Inspector of Bread, uh, resigned following allegations that they had been pocketing some portion of the fees collected in their duties. Most dramatic was the fall of William Mooney, the amiable and popular former cabinet maker who had helped found Tammany back in 1789. Mooney was now the head of the city almshouse, a position for which he received a total annual salary of $1,500. However, an investigation found that he had skimmed thousands of additional dollars in fees and supplies from his office. In an attempt to explain his actions, Mooney had recorded the missing items as trifles for Mrs. Mooney. For decades, this phrase had a place in New York's political lexicon as shorthand for petty corruption. Maybe we should bring that back. It didn't take long for the scale of impropriety among Tammany's members uh, to catch the wider public's attention. Mayor DeWitt Clinton recognized an opportunity to strike a blow against his rivals, and he launched a broad investigation into these misdeeds. At Clinton's behest, this investigation zeroed in on allegations that Tammany's leader, Matthew Davis, had illegally smuggled grain out of New York in violation of federal law. This allegation eventually petered out, and Davis was never indicted. However, his reputation was forever tarnished. While these internal changes would forever reshape Tammany Hall, external events soon created the conditions for Tammany's return to political relevance. The Clinton-Livingston alliance seemed to be firmly ensconced in the catbird seat of New York politics. Members of the two dynasties held sway as vice president, governor, and mayor, as well as a host of smaller offices across the state. It should come as no surprise, however, that it didn't take long for cracks to appear within this alliance. The egos involved were just too great. The Clintons clearly had the upper hand in the relationship at this time, a fact resented by the wealthy and proud Livingston family. At least two members of this faction, Minister to France Robert Livingston and his brother-in-law, Governor Morgan Lewis, could plausibly see themselves as leaders of the Democratic-Republican Party in the North. Why should they take orders from either an aging George Clinton or his pushy nephew DeWitt? These personal differences soon boiled over into an outright breach. In the spring of 1805, a group of investors sought a charter from the state legislature for a new financial institution to be known as the Merchants' Bank. At this point, uh, DeWitt Clinton had a controlling interest in the Manhattan Company, the bank Aaron Burr had once done so much to establish. He did not want to back a rival, and he made it clear that he opposed the Merchant Bank's charter. Governor Lewis, however, disagreed and came out in full support of the new bank. Clinton hit the roof. He had supported Lewis's candidacy for governor on the understanding that he would be little more than a puppet. Now, however, the puppet was talking back. Clinton's followers insinuated that the merchant bank had bribed Lewis and other supporters for the, of the bank's charter. 
The allegations against Lewis were never proved, and it's not as though Clinton's opposition to the bank was entirely free of financial self-interest. In any event, Lewis prevailed and the charter was granted. The Witt Clinton now declared an all-out war on Lewis and the rest of the Livingstons. In the words of one historian, henceforth these two lordly families were to be as Capulet and Montague. Suddenly, Tammany was back in demand. Both rival factions recognized that this large and well-organized source of Democratic-Republican votes had the potential to swing control of the state party. The ever-flexible DeWitt Clinton overcame his distaste for Burr's little band and made the first move. In December 1805, he reached out to Tammany's leadership through intermediaries. Some old Burrites were receptive, including, surprisingly, John Swartout, whom Clinton had twice shot in a duel just a few years earlier. By February, Clinton and Swartout convened a public banquet dubbed the Union Supper, in which Clinton toasted the former Burrites as Republicans in good standing. Less publicly, Clinton's Manhattan Bank made out a $9,000 loan to Swartout. The move backfired spectacularly. The majority of Tammany's membership, including Matthew Davis, wanted nothing to do with Clinton. In a raucous meeting at Martling's Tavern, they condemned the mayor as a double dealer and pledged their support for Governor Lewis in his fight with the Clintons. This newly forged alliance between Lewis and Tammany was not sufficient to overcome the institutional power of the Clinton machine. For the upcoming governor's election in 1807, the Witt Clinton once again cast around for a pliable candidate who could unseat his erstwhile puppet, Governor Lewis. He found his man in Daniel Tompkins, a genial if uninspiring state court judge whose rural upbringing and down-to-earth manner earned him the nickname The Farmer's Boy. Throughout the campaign, both sides ran as the true defenders of Republican principles and tried to paint their opponents as corrupt aristocrats. In reality, this race was little more than a raw factional dispute. Ultimately, Tompkins and the Clintonites defeated Lewis and Tammany by some 5,000 votes statewide. However, Tammany's support helped Lewis carry New York City by a fairly wide margin. Events on the national political scene only exacerbated this factional dispute within New York's Democratic-Republican Party. Thomas Jefferson had had a fairly smooth go of things in his first term. A stable economy, relatively calm relations with the warring European powers, and above all, the Louisiana Purchase, resulted in a buoyant national mood and the president's landslide re-election in 1804. Events overseas, however, ensured that things took a darker turn in Jefferson's second term. Following Nelson's victory at the Battle of Trafalgar in October 1805, the British Navy sought to press its advantage at sea by announcing an all-out blockade of French-controlled ports on continental Europe. In response, Napoleon granted the French Navy broad authority to board and inspect ships suspected of complying with British demands. 
In effect, the two most powerful nations in the world had just given themselves carte blanche to harass neutral shipping. This posed a direct threat to both the American economy and the nation's sovereignty. Jefferson and Secretary of State James Madison sought to address this threat through the Embargo Act of 1807. This was effectively a self-boycott which both prohibited American merchants from trading with belligerent nations and banned British and French imports from the American market. The administration hoped that the loss of American trade would bring the British economy to its knees and the British government to the negotiating table. That is not what happened. The Embargo Act was littered with loopholes. Enforcement was lax and evasion was rampant. In the end, the impact on the European economy was limited at best. Instead, the embargo sparked a wave of indignant protest across America's commercial centers. Nowhere was this more true than in New York, which had now established itself as the country's largest port. The city's newspapers spoke out against the policy in vociferous terms. Unemployment skyrocketed. Sailors and other workers hurt by the embargo organized large protests. Within months, the city's economy was shattered and tax receipts fell off a cliff. In the words of one visitor, everything presented a melancholy appearance. The streets near the waterside were almost deserted. The grass had begun to grow upon the wharf. The embargo put New York's Democratic-Republican leaders in a pickle. They were caught between lo local economic concerns and loyalty to their national party's signature foreign policy. The new governor, uh, Daniel Tompkins, publicly endorsed the embargo as a better option to all-out war. The Clintons, on the other hand, were more cagey. Vice President George Clinton uh, publicly mocked his own administration's military preparations as woefully inadequate. DeWitt Clinton refused to attack Jefferson in public, but some of his closest allies in the press launched blistering broadsides against the embargo. Tammany Hall also had some reason to follow Clinton's conflicted approach. After all, Tammany's voting base was located among these small-scale craftsmen and artisans who suffered most directly from the loss of international trade. However, in this instance, ideology and political expedience won out over economic concerns. Matthew Davis himself published editorials praising the president and his policy. Always keen to hug the flag and bash the British, Tammany's leaders painted the embargo as a necessary and patriotic response to European bullying. At the same time, Tammany was eager to stand with Jefferson and reaffirm their status as true re Republicans. Those, including DeWitt Clinton, who harbored reservations about the president's policies, could be dismissed as disloyal crypto-federalists. Essentially, Tammany was co-opting the strategy that Clinton himself had once used to such great effect against Burr. These various conflicts within the Democratic-Republican Party came to a head in the build-up to the election of 1808. With Jefferson heading towards retirement, Vice President George Clinton girded himself for one last quixotic run for the presidency. Pushing 70, the New Yorker was now well past his prime. No mind, no intellect, no memory, 
was the harsh assessment of one senator. Yet, Clinton remained the most prominent Northern Democratic Republican, and he was the most plausible candidate to break the Virginia dynasty's ongoing hold on the presidency. James Madison, on the other hand, was Jefferson's preferred successor and the clear favorite of National Democratic Republicans. The party's nominating caucus backed Madison by a wide margin and, somewhat condescendingly, nominated Clinton for another term as vice president. Despite this setback, Clinton and his supporters turned their attention to New York. Even without the National Party's backing, a strong showing in his home state could help build support elsewhere in the North. Tammany Hall soon emerged as the home base for the state's pro-Madison Democratic Republicans. In August, Matthew Davis organized a raucous meeting at Martling's Tavern, which confirmed Tammany's support for Madison. Clinton's followers were effectively purged from the Tammany Hall General Committee. In some cases, they were literally pushed out of the tavern amid cries of, Hustle him! Hustle him! He's a Clintonian! From this point forward, the anti-Clinton faction in New York politics would be known as Martling Men, in honor of Tammany's meeting place. Clintonians were now branded as schismatics in cahoots with Federalists uh, to undermine the National Democratic Republican Party. It was a startling reversal of the attacks to what Clinton had once used to undermine Aaron Burr. Remarkably, after a few short years in the wilderness, Tammany was now the official Republican organization in New York City. In the end, the election was a stinging defeat for Clinton. Only six of New York's 19 electoral votes went to the man who had dominated state politics for the better part of four decades. Even Daniel Tompkins, Clinton's supposed puppet in the governor's mansion, saw no choice but to back Madison. Nationally, the Virginian enjoyed a rout over the ever-diminishing Federalist Party. The Clintons, particularly DeWitt Clinton, would not soon forget this humiliation. And so, moving forward, the battle lines were officially drawn between Tammany Hall and DeWitt Clinton. In due course, this political war took place against the backdrop of an actual war. That and so much more will be our story for next time. For now, I hope you enjoyed the episode, and thanks for listening.